This is, O oh Father, what we have designated as Lord's Supper Sunday. And this is remarkably wonderful for us to know that what we are doing here in Fort Worth, your people are doing all around the world, is the sign, the symbol, the ordinance, the sacrament that we share in common no matter where Christians are. Some of them today are being persecuted, and yet so many of them will share the Lord's table in solidarity with us, in unity with us, though they may never meet us. Because the centrality of all that we believe, at the center of it all, we find a cross where you shed your blood on our behalf, and you did it for our salvation. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world as the light, the light that gives hope, the light that is a beacon that leads us and directs us and protects us, but a light that also exposes our sin and then forgives it and gives us life. And we pray, Father, now that you'd help us to understand this more completely, and most of all, that we would come away loving Jesus more than we did before. And so, Father, we give you thanks for this hour, and we praise you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 8, if you could turn there in your Bible, John chapter 8, and stand with me, and we will look at our passage for this morning. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. John 8, 12 through 20. And then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it. But I and the Father who sent me, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true, and he who testifies, uh, and I, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And so they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. One of the things about expository preaching is you end up in the same context for an extended period of time, and here we are with Jesus once again. He's still in the temple. It's still the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents, because uh, the Feast of Booths was a national holiday. It was a prescribed feast. It was one of the top three that the Lord had ordained for all the males in Israel to come together in Jerusalem to celebrate, and it had a purpose. Its purpose was to commemorate or to remind the people of uh, what happened to their forefathers in the wilderness after God rescued them from 
uh, Egypt. And so here Jesus is in the temple, and he's in a specific place. Here at the end of the passage, John tells us that he was speaking these things in the treasury. Now, the treasury is kind of the place where they keep the money, and no one really expects that they were in the treasury, but they were in uh, a place right in front of the treasury. They, they called it the treasury. It was actually the court of women. And the reason they called it the treasury was because there were, there were 13 uh, trumpet-shaped receptacles that you could go in and put your money in. And each of the receptacles had a, uh, had a box at the bottom, a trumpet at the top. You drop your money in, and it made sound as it went down. And Pharisees would come in, and they would pour uh, their coinage into it to make a big sound, and they would actually have people play the trumpet and all that stuff that you know that Jesus condemned. Uh, but each one of these trumpets had a little place that designated where the money from this box would go. It might go to the priest, or it might go to the sacrifice, or it might go to support this or that. Um, and you could give to whatever area of the priestly ministry you wanted to. But the place where all of this was happening was the perfect place for people to gather. The Gentiles couldn't gather in there. They had to be in the court of the Gentiles, which was outside, uh, or outside this area anyway. And uh, so there they were, right at the court of women, a place where the trumpet-shaped repositories were kept, where people would come in. You remember Jesus' story about the widow's mite? That took place there. And so people would gather, and so the rabbis would teach Another thing, we mentioned this last week, it was in the court of women or in this treasury area where they had these gigantic candelabras, these menorahs, these seven-stemmed lampposts. And historians say it was so bright when they lit that thing, those two, that it would illuminate the whole of Jerusalem, or at least it seemed so. And they really lit that, lit these two menorahs at the beginning of the Feast of Booths, and it carried it all the way through the week, seven days. And then at the end, they would put the lamps out. And most scholars believe that it was when they put the lamps out that Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Um, this is significant. He follows that by saying, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we all know that light and life go together. It's hard to have life where there isn't light, generally speaking. We know these two go together. I mean, if our son would die, we would die. And so that's the connection, I think, light and life. But this is an amazing statement that Jesus makes. I am the light of the world, meaning I am the light that gives life. You may think life comes from the sun. The sun is merely a shadow. If there is any life that is derived from the sun, it derives its life from me. I am the life because I am the light. Now, to get to the heart of Jesus' message here, we need to remember what the Feast of Booths was about. And as I said, it was, a, it was primarily about all the rituals that took place during that time were reflective of their wilderness wandering. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness. And you remember that whole story about how God used Moses to rescue the people from Egypt. And so God sent the ten plagues. They came to the, the, the Dead Sea. They thought they were doomed. God parted the Red Sea. 
and, uh, and killed all of the soldiers of Egypt. And when they got to the other side, you know, they, they were headed to the promised land, and, and they came up out of the water, and what did they find? Did they find uh, land flowing with milk and honey? Uh, were there verdant fields of green and streams everywhere? No, it was nothing but desert. It was desert. And you got to know, the first thing that they were asking when they came out of the sea into the desert was, oh no, how will we ever survive? And they immediately start complaining. I mean, after the dancing, dancing and singings uh, about uh, how God has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider have fallen into the sea, and all of that that Miriam started, now they start complaining. Uh, why did you bring us out into this desert? Were there not enough graves in Egypt, you remember? And what, how are we ever going to survive? Where are we going to get water? Where are we going to get food? And what are we going to do? And that's exactly where we pick up. I mean, when we think about what, is, what does this have to do, how is this relevant to the Gospel of John? It is relevant because of this. In chapters 4 and 7, Jesus offers himself as the living water. Remember in the desert, they said, what are we going to drink? Where are we going to get water? Let's go back to Egypt. Somebody lead us. And Moses said, I'll give you water. And under God's authority, he struck the rock or he waved his um, stick over the rock and he got water from a rock. I am your provider, God was saying. Where, where are we going to get bread? Where are we going to get anything to eat? And God sent what? The little flake-like, flower-like substance that they could turn into bread and make it into cakes, and, and the people didn't know what it was, and they called it what? Manna. And then the third thing that they needed, they needed water, they needed food. They also needed God's presence. And how did God appear as his presence? Primarily as light, as fire and smoke. And the people called it the Shekinah glory of God. It was the radiant illuminating glory of God that even allowed them to hike at night through the desert because his glory was so bright above them. And here Jesus comes along, and in chapters 4 and 7, reflecting back on that time in the wilderness, he says, I am the living water. And um, chapter 6 I am the bread of life. And you remember, he made it a point to say, the manna was good, but everybody who ate that manna died. If you eat the bread I give, you'll never die. You see the parallel? And then what about God's presence? And here Jesus wraps it up. The third metaphor, I am not just the water of life and the bread of life, I am light. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. But he will have the light of life. Still, the significance of all of this can be easily missed. Because I want to submit to you that Jesus was, he wasn't simply offering himself as Israel's provider. He's not just saying, just as God provided for you in the wilderness, I will provide for you now. That's not what he was saying. He was saying something more simple and yet almost infinitely more profound. What he was saying is, not I will provide like God provide, provided in the desert, but 
I am the God who provided in the desert. I am that light. I am the water. I am the bread. He was offering himself as God. He was claiming to be God. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, that's that's what he was claiming. The same God who led Israel through the wilderness and provided for their every need, I am he. And I will provide what your soul really needs if you will leave everything and follow me. This connection between God and light is interesting throughout the Old and New Testaments. In, in the New Testament, there's an explicit reference in John's, not John's gospel, but John's first epistle, his first letter, when he says this in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is what, class? Light. Isn't that interesting? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? It means there's no moral impurity, there's no sin, there is nothing but glory, holy, righteous glory in God. And in that sense, he is unlike the world. Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20 um, God, throughout the book of Isaiah, it's interesting, most of the first 39 chapters, God is saying, you're in big trouble, I'm sending people to, uh, to destroy you, uh, you're under judgment, you've rejected me, uh, you, you stop giving me these sacrifices, I'm not accepting them, I don't receive your worship, I'm going to annihilate you as a nation, I'm going to take you captive, you're in serious trouble. In chapter 40, everything changes, and God, through the prophet, he says to, he says to Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people because they will not always be under my judgment. There will be a day when all wrongs will be made right. And he says this, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord as an everlasting light and your God for glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will the moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Isn't that great? And so we see the connection. God is connecting life and light and the sun and the moon and And it's as if he's saying, but all of these are just reflections of the true light, which is me. I give you light. I am the source of life. And this is repeated in Revelation. Same same promise, only now New Testament. And again, this is is, um, the Apostle John in chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. He's speaking about the New Jerusalem, and John says this, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, isn't that fascinating? You know what that tells me? The whole building of the tabernacle, and then building of Solomon's temple, and the temples that followed, and all the sacrifices, as wonderful and as essential as they were, they were merely a shadow of the reality 
that is Christ. And it goes on. New Jerusalem again, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's a new component. The Lamb is the lamp. We can see metaphor all over this, simile all over it. God is your light, O Israel. God is your light, church. God is the source of life, and your God is the Lamb. In Revelation 22, verse 5, And there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them. It's amazing. You know, everything on our planet is alive because of the sun. But you know what the sun really is. I mean, the sun is actually there. It is an actual star, and it does, in its way, give life to this planet. One of the ways but it is a derived life, and it is a borrowed light. It all comes from God. You realize there would be no light if there was no God. There would be no life if there was no God. There would be no love. There would be no mercy. There would be nothing if there were no God. He is the source. He is the first cause. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that he himself might become preeminent in everything. He holds everything together. It all goes back to God. And so you see, the primary message Jesus is bringing here is that he himself is the very Son of God, the Messiah, the light. But the Jews didn't believe him, and they didn't believe him. And that's what the rest of this text for this morning is about. As, as we kind of read this, and we already have, it may not have stood out to you at first, but let me just, let me just make an observation. And uh, some of you, I know there are at least uh, two lawyers, or one and one budding lawyer here, and so if you read this text, something's going to pop for you. You're going to hear courtroom language. And um, here's the first word, and it's a repeated word, so it's, it's crucial. It's the word testify and testimony. And so when you're trying to determine what is true in a particular case, you bring evidence, and, and some of that evidence will be testimonial. It'll be people who saw it or saw something related to it, and you build your case. And so look at verse 13. They say to him, you are testifying about yourself your testimony is not valid. And so what they're saying is, whatever you're saying is true, we cannot accept as true because your testimony isn't valid. Verse 14, Jesus says, even if I testify, it's the third use, about myself, my testimony, fourth use, is true. Verse 17, he appeals to the law, and he says, the testimony of two men is valid, according to the law. Verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me 
also testifies. And so we have the, the courtroom language of testimony, but we also have the courtroom, courtroom, courtroom uh, language when he speaks of the judge and judgment, the judge making judgment, who's, who is able to make judgment in this case. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Verse 16, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true. And so we have testimony, we have judgment, and all of it is moving toward, at least ostensibly moving toward the truth. The Pharisees would have us believe that what they're really after is the truth, which is a lie, ironically. And so verse 13, your testimony is not true. 14, my testimony is true. Verse 16, my judgment is true. And verse 17, the testimony of two men is true. And so you see the argument. The Pharisees are saying, we don't accept what you have to say about yourself. And the reason we don't accept it is a legal reason. We have legal precedent for this. Nobody accepts the testimony of one witness. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but the distilled essence of this passage is that the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus' testimony about who he is. And again, the, real, the, the reason that they gave for rejecting him was that the law requires two witnesses, not one. But that wasn't the real reason they were rejecting him. It wasn't the real reason. They were lying, and perhaps lying to themselves, and they believed their own lie to themselves. And Jesus tells us the real reason, and he says this, look at verse 15. The real reason they were rejecting him is because, quote, you judge according to the flesh. The problem was not a lack of evidence. There was plenty of evidence, and there was plenty of testimony. John the Baptist, for example, testified. Everybody believed that he was a prophet. Even, even the Pharisees believed that he was a prophet. And he testified that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus' miracles repeatedly testified to his identity on top of John the Baptist's testimony. And they got around that just by saying, uh, you do miracles by the power of demons. And the word of God testifies to Jesus, his identity. I mean, it was the word of God that said he would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. And they talked about where he would live as, a, as one who has come from Nazareth, and he did. And the Old Testament was the one that talked about what his life would be like, how he would suffer and how he would die, and then he would rise again. The word of God gave testimony. And on three separate occasions, God the Father even spoke audibly out of heaven, testifying to Jesus' identity. No, the reason the Pharisees rejected Jesus' testimony about himself was simply not because there wasn't enough evidence or witnesses, but because of this. What they were ruled by was not the word of God or even love of God. They were ruled by their flesh. They were ruled by their desires. Sometimes in counseling, someone will come and they'll try to explain why they did what they did. And sometimes you hear some really bizarre things and you think, 
Do you expect me to believe that? <laughs> Aliens? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's like a child who comes. Like I remember my mom telling me that he, she sent my sister to the store to get eggs, and she rode on her bike to get the eggs, and so she got the eggs, and she was riding home on her bike, and she was fooling around on her bike, and, you know, the, the, the eggs were in a little plastic bag, and, and she turned her wheel, and the eggs got caught in the spokes, <laughs> and there was egg everywhere. And when my mom asked her what happened to the eggs, she said, Mom, it's so hot, they melted. Really? Why? I mean, because there was any semblance of truth to that? And it wasn't obvious on its face that that not only didn't happen, it could not happen. And yet, we're willing to twist the truth and to suppress the truth and to almost get ourselves to believe a ridiculous lie if we think it will get us what we want or protect us from what we don't want. And they didn't need more evidence. They didn't need more testimony. The reason the Pharisees rejected Jesus' testimony about himself was simply because they were ruled by their flesh, their fleshly human desires, rather than the knowledge of God and the love of God. In other words, they loved their sin rather than God. And Jesus nails them on this. Um, And we're going to see that as we move along here in the text next week. But notice when Jesus is talking about his father, he says, verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I judge, my judgment is true. I am, for I am not alone in it. And they said to him, verse 19, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And the reverse can be true. You know, uh, it's hardly anywhere I go. If my kids are near me and we're meeting new people, um, somebody will come to me and say, hey, is, is Andrew your son? Or is, uh, is Shana your daughter? Or is Josh one of your kids? You know, and, and down the line they go. And uh, I'll say, well, yeah, why? And he said, well, it's obvious. They all look like you. I have to apologize to my kids for that all the time. But um, we take on the resemblance of of the one to whom we belong. Jesus was representing the Father. He was as the rays of the sun represent the sun itself. So the presence of Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, they are inseparable. You don't look up and say, We see sunbeams, do we? We see beams from the sun. We don't say that. We say, look at the sun. Isn't the sun glorious? When in reality, we're seeing the beams. They should have looked at Jesus and said, there's God. We know God. We love God. We'll see his child when he comes. You say, really, is that practical? I mean, could that possibly happen? It did happen. Remember when Jesus came? They take him to the temple, and Simeon comes over to him, and he looks at this infant baby, and he knows. He's the son of God. This is what I've been waiting for. Lord, you can take me now. I have seen your son. And as soon as he steps out of the way, here comes, um, 
What's her name? Anna. Uh, I was going to say Miriam. I knew that was wrong. Anna. Anna comes up, and she immediately recognizes him. This is the Son of God. And then not only two Jews in the temple, we'd expect, you know, these faithful, single, older people who have got nothing to do but pray and read the Bible and, and talk to Jesus all day. But here was Gentiles, the wise men who came from the east. Where is that? We don't know. Maybe they came from Ur or, or from uh, Babylon or, or one of the subsidiaries of Babylon, Persia. Um, but they were Gentile. And here they come. And when they see him, what do they do? They fall on their faces and they worship I mean, how did they know? I mean, was he glowing like they show you in the old medieval pictures? Did he have the halo? No. They knew God. And so they recognized his son. Um, they should have known. And they would have known if they had a heart to know. Here's what John, you know, when we look at this and we think, how in the world could you have missed it? How could you have missed that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, John tells us, I mean, all the way back in the beginning of his gospel, John chapter 1. So flip a few pages to the left. I think that was about four pages for me. To the left, and look at John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John 1, 4 and 5. Here's the explanation, or part of it. In him, that is in Jesus, the Word who created everything, in him was life, and the life was the light. Now, there is an intrinsic connection between life and light in the text. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend. Probably a better word is overpower. The, the, the darkness did not overpower it. So, whatever light is, we know that the light has the power to give life. Now, look at same chapter. Look at verses 9 through 11. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, this is talking about Jesus still, the true light. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so the Apostle John reveals that the light is Jesus, who came to give life to the world, but the world rejected him. Now, look at, turn one page to the right and come to chapter 3. And more, kind of putting pieces together here. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we get to the reason for the rejection. This is the judgment. This is chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and... Why do they reject him? Men loved darkness. They loved darkness. I'm saying, when Jesus says... Your judgment is invalid because you judge according to the flesh. This is it. You love darkness. Your flesh, you're being led by the flesh. You love darkness rather than light. Now, why? Why do they love darkness rather than light? Now we're really getting to the heart issue. For their deeds were evil. They loved their sin. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear. Isn't that interesting? You know why they didn't come to Jesus? They were, they were scared. They were afraid of him. And what, 
were they afraid of? For fear that their deeds will be exposed. And yet, beloved, that's what the light does. It exposes the darkness. It exposes the flaws. It exposes, spiritually speaking, it exposes the sin. Why? Because that's the only way life can be given. Listen, if you have a tumor, what has to, what has to happen? You call a surgeon, you make an appointment, and he exposes that thing. And does it hurt? Well, it may not hurt while he's doing it because of artificial means, but it'll hurt later. And the best thing that can happen when I have sin in my life, you know what the best thing that can happen is? So I get myself under, if I have sin in my life, if I get myself under the light, God, search me, put your spotlight on me. I can't even comprehend what's going on in my heart. Help me to understand it. Help me to see it. Help me to repent of it. Help me to bring it to the cross where he already paid for it. But you know what? If you don't belong to him, if you don't trust him, if you don't trust him, You'll never bring it to the light. You'll keep that thing hidden. You'll keep it hidden. And so, darkness has to do with sin and evil, which are contrary to the light, which is pure and holy, because it is the light of God. But you can't get life out of darkness. You can only get life out of light. And so, do you know why the Pharisees would not believe in Jesus? Why they wouldn't believe his testimony about him? Here's the reason why. It was because they didn't want their darkness to be exposed. It's because they didn't want to admit that they were spiritually needy, that would take humility, and blind, that would take extraordinary humility, because they were the religious elite. Like they were the leaders how are we ever going to admit that we're blind? You, you know what would happen if we told everybody we're, we've been leading you the wrong direction this whole time? We'd be out. It's too much. Too much to lose. And they were blind to their own blindness, which makes them doubly dark and doubly blind. And this is why they were offended at Jesus. They knew intuitively that his holiness would expose their wretchedness. And they didn't want any part of that. He offended them. And he angered them because his, his light shined right through them, exposing who they really were and what they really needed. This is what the light of God does. It gives light to all, to all who believe. But first, in order to give life, it must expose the darkness. It must expose the sin. And listen to me, every, every eye up here for just a second. If the thing that makes you feel most alive is sin, then you will absolutely hate the light. If what makes you feel most alive in this life is sin, you will hate the light. And that's what's happening here. They love their sin. They love their pride. They wanted to be exalted. They wanted to be in God's place. They didn't want anybody interfering with that. They wanted to be rich. They wanted to be respected. And so they pursued that rather than the glory of God. If you love your sin, 
you will hate the light. You'll hide from it. You'll curse it. You'll contrive all kinds of plausible and foolish reasons for rejecting it. And you will keep all of that hidden, tucked away in secret, in the darkest places possible, so that no one, not even you, can really see it for what it is. And that's death. Just ignore the cancer. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe it'll kill you. My friend, if, if this is a description of you this morning, if life for you consists of the thrill that you get from the next sin, if the thought of allowing Christ to shine into your light, life with his uh, holy gaze, if that's an odious thing to you, then um, I have good news. I have really good news for you. You know what the good news is? Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to save. He'd expose your sin. Yes, there's all the evidence he needs for judgment. It's exposed, but no judgment. Not yet. Not yet. There is still time to be reconciled to God. There is still time to repent. There is still time to say, Sir, God, know my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. Whatever I am, all that I have, it's yours. Change me from the inside out. I'm yours. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You should know that Jesus does not wield his holy light to judge you, but to save you. His is the light that gives life, eternal life. And it is an offer of life, not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. Because, Jesus says, I am the light of the, what? World. And you know that had to, have, had to slap the, the high priests and the Pharisees. I mean, the world. It was a fulfillment of, of the prophecy in Isaiah that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, and be the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. You're not... You're not going to worry about being blind. You're not going to lack wisdom and direction. I am the light, just like I led Israel through that, that desert in the daytime, in the nighttime, every time. I will lead you. You will have the light of life. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That's why he came. Not just to expose your sin, but to reconcile it. To redeem it, to pay for it. And so this morning, if you don't belong to Christ, I suspect you probably have already discovered that the promise of life offered by money and sex and education and relationships uh, government, false religion, you name it. Other things that this world promises you to give you life, you, you no doubt have, have found that that's an empty promise. And if you, then you will. You can't trust those things, but you can trust in Christ. Jesus will fulfill all of his promises. He is the true light. He is the light that gives life. And it is a life that can be yours if you will humble yourself before him, admit your blindness, admit your sin, your darkness, and receive him. And it really is a matter of him receiving you.
But he's already said he would if you would come. On the other hand, if you already belong to Christ, you're in a different position and a wonderful one. But there are, just as there are promises of the gospel, there are also demands of the gospel. The demand is this. Since you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, now act like it. Live like it. Live like children of the light. That's exactly what he says in Ephesians 5, 8 through, 8, 8 through 11. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Is that your life ambition? What I want to do today is I want to discern in my pe- peculiar circumstances where I don't have a thou shalt or a thou shalt not, thou shalt not necessarily. I want to evaluate my circumstances right now to see what would be most pleasing to the Lord. That's what children of the light do. They seek counsel so they can get to that end. They read their Bible so they can get to that end. They want to magnify the excellencies and the supremacy of Christ in all things. And so walking in the light means striving to please the Lord. Not only that, but walking in the light also means having an open and honest attitude about your sin. Yes, it's all forgiven, but as you sin, it can really, it can really cloud your ability to see God clearly and your neighbor and your responsibility. And even that can be forgiven, but you've got to walk in the light. First John 1, 5 through 7, this is kind of where we began. This is the passage that says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know what this is? This is one of the diagnostic texts. This is one of the evidences that you are or are not a child of God, which is the whole purpose of 1 John, I think. And here's what he's saying. One of the tests is this. Not are you perfect in your behavior, but are you open and honest about your sin? I know he's not saying perfect because in the next couple of verses he says things like this. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then he says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So it's not that we don't ever, ever, ever sin anymore. We're still fallen people, broken people, in desperate need of change, totally dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not the issue. The issue is this. Do I have a humble and open attitude about my sin? When someone comes to me and says, Brother... You know that, that joke you told a little bit ago? How you, made, uh, how you made a joke at someone else's expense? I'm not sure the Lord was pleased with that. You know what my first thought would be? Not, oh no, you don't understand. You're wrong. My first thought would be, should be, maybe you're right. Maybe there's something wrong with my heart or was when I said that. It's having an open and honest attitude about your sin. And it's this, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another. That's why I've often said I think this is the most profound marriage text in all of the New Testament. Because if you're both open and honest about your sin, you're going to have fellowship with one another. And, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that great? Beloved, this is what it means to walk in the light. And those who walk in the light are people who have been rescued from the darkness. We have, by God's grace, willingly put ourselves under the light and said, God, reveal anything, anything that's there that needs to be forgiven and dealt with and broken free of. I'm yours. I'm all of yours. The same light that exposes man's sin is the light that gives life to all who believe. Father, we thank you for this, and as we get ready to take of the Lord's table, we especially need this reminder. Paul warned us not to come in an unworthy manner, and we don't want to come while we're playing fast and loose with sin, while we <laughs> perhaps maybe we just have an oops view of sin, and we just don't take it that seriously. And yet you have redeemed us by your life-giving light. You have rescued us from the darkness and you have called us now to walk as children of the light who are seeking always and perpetually how to please you in everything we do, whether we eat or drink or speak or play. May all of it be to the, your glory and honor and we know that we fail so often to do that. Help us now, Father, to seek the purifying forgiveness of your Son by the power of your Spirit and all to your great glory, O oh Father, for we pray it in Jesus' name.